detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. No words. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartlewall. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. We have started ourselves here in Ontario with the week opened with about 60 degrees, and then two days later, it was snowing. And today, it snowed again, and then tomorrow, it's supposed to go back up to the mid to late 50s. So that's spring in Ontario, folks. Those of you that are down south have no concept, unless you're Canadians who are hiding away from it. <laughs> <laughs> Expatriates. Yeah. Uh, the uh, That's funny. I was telling my kids, at the, because of the bus stop, it was very, we're in Baltimore, of course, and it was very cold. And I was sitting there saying, man, it almost feels like it's going to be snow. And I was saying, oh, yeah, up in uh, Canada, Bill says they have snow. And my son, and now that you sent them candy, they're all very much aware of you. I think they even think you're their uncle or something. So they're always like, what did Bill, what did Bill, uh, well, can you show me a picture of Bill's house with the snow on it? I was like, okay. But my wife, who's, who works down in the city, which is about 20 minutes away from us, she said it was snowing down there today. So even yeah. down here, apparently today, we had a little bit. We didn't, it was probably more like like flurries that didn't vanish because it's, you know, here in April, but uh, it wasn't like what you had. <laughs> It was funny though, because I sent a picture to friend of the podcast, Matt Rawlings with father and son watches horror. And he was like, you know what? He's in Ohio and he was getting snow as well. So I think it was a Northeast thing. Strangely cold. And it, like, I will know if it comes through on the podcast here, but your, your tones are even more dulcet than normal, uh, Bill, because you have a new microphone, right? Yes, I have a new Blue Yeti, so I ponied up to $200 to get that, all for the audience's benefit, of course. And I learn my techie stuff by basically messing up and fixing. So any little quirks and drabs you hear from me today, I'll be fixing it up for next week. And these these <laughs> Yeti mics, I have one. So yeah, so basically Phantom Galaxy is brought to you by the Yeti Blue Microphone now. <laughs> and and, and we're, we're waiting for the rebates and vouchers. <laughs> and we will be waiting and waiting and waiting. <laughs> so this is going to be another uh, last week. I said we have the bi-weekly review, but turns out it, it maybe it'll turn into the weekly review. You'll see. I don't want to be too ambitious, but we are going to have another episode. This one's releasing at the same time that you can find uh, our big King Kong episode that we did with uh, Greg and Dave Becker, Greg, Mor- uh, Greg Morgan and Dave Becker and Bill. Wow of all the land of the creeps rolled out and we uh, did, we went through all the Kong movies. It's very cool. And we, and we culminated with Godzilla versus Kong at the time we recorded it. Uh, it was Greg and I who had seen uh, Godzilla versus Kong. So there's a review in there for that. You can still catch that on HBO max this week. We're going to 
cover a couple of uh, films and things like that that are out right now. We're going to do some more next week as well. And I'm going to turn it over to Bill first and uh, cover his first movie. So, Bill, you want to take it away? So, the other day at work, I was sitting there thinking, I got to watch some kind of sci-fi, but it needs to be work appropriate. So, that pretty much cuts out probably about 50% of what I watch. So <laughs> That might be generous. <laughs> that might be generous, yeah. So, I went on the YouTube and I figured if I type in like horror or sci-fi full films, I'll find one that's probably appropriate. And so hopefully, you kind of find some hidden gems, mine for gold. And I came across one from 1961. I'll call it sci-fi. It's maybe got elements of horror, maybe got elements of fantasy, a little bit of action and drama. It's called Flight That Disappeared. And the IMDb synopsis is, a cross-country airliner whose passengers include a nuclear physicist, a rocket expert, and a mathematical genius is drawn beyond radar range by an unknown, unbreakable force. Dun, 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 dun. And you, you, you think Leslie Nielsen's going to be up front or something. But this, what happens is, as the film opens, we see a series of passengers coming on a commercial airliner. And I, think, I don't think they're actually really specific where they're flying somewhere across the United States because the airline is fictitious. We get to know the characters and that's about the first 15 minutes or so talking back and forth, small talk, getting to know where they're from, what jobs they have, what their life's ambitions are, that sort of thing. And it's one of those movies you can tell right away it's lower budgeted, but it doesn't look cheap. Like we're not talking an Ed Wood kind of deal here. They just used a small space horror or a small space sci-fi in a confined area where it's essentially character and dialogue driven. That's what the film's about. So after we kind of get to know the people and the, and the plane is in the air, you know, some untold, unforeseen things begin to happen. And one of them is the plane begins to escalate with more rap- rapidity. Is that a word? Rapidity? Rapid fashion. It sounds good. Sounds good. I'll make be my own lexicologist. So it rapidly begins to rise in the atmosphere and rise through the clouds faster than the pilot or the co-pilot or people on board kind of saw coming. And eventually the engines go out, the dashboard kind of goes, they can't really track themselves. And eventually the tracking system down below on the ground loses track of them. So it's literally... The flight has disappeared off the face of the earth. And initially, uh, ground control thinks that it's crashed uh, or it's fallen into the ocean because they can't find it. And But uh, the audience knows it has still survived because obviously the movie's going. And we get to know some of the characters. One of the characters is a mathematician. Uh, we have a nuclear physicist. We have a rocket scientist. And that all plays into it because the rockets and one of them is a a female business person. They've all kind of been sent on a trip to Washington, independent of each other. And that plays into the story. I don't know how much deeper you want to get into it, Nathan. Maybe you can add a bit more to details that may have overlooked and neglected. But there is a moral decision that it kind of comes down to. 
No, I think that was pretty good because it sets up the basic uh, nature of the film. And I think it's also uh, useful to mention this is about a 70-minute movie. Uh, you might have mentioned that it is a little on the shorter side, Bill. Uh, so it, it, it really, by the time most of the setup that you mentioned occurs, you're almost close to about halfway through it. You know, once we have uh, the uh, the incident that occurs with their plane escalating um, into the air and, and going higher than they're expecting it to go, and then it's like, okay, something something out of the ordinary, if not supernatural, then something extraordinary is happening. And then where it goes after that, you have them. Uh, arrive at a place and the question is where are they and then they meet some other they meet some characters and uh and the kind of the second half of the film kicks in and so there's obviously a couple of of options on what exactly is going on i do think that the, the movie comes down on a pretty clear side of what is happening that might actually be one of my issues with it that it almost wraps up a little too neatly uh this is 1961 and it's kind of coming right at that point when the Twilight Zone, you know, you're you're right around the uh, the time that the Twilight Zone uh, becomes a thing. And this very much feels like I'd say it feels like the Twilight Zone a little bit. It also feels a lot like uh, the the other sort of pseudo Twilight Zone, which was the uh, Outer Limits. And actually, Twilight Zone had been running for about a year or so by the time this movie gets released. You know, Twilight Zone starts in 1959. And then this movie comes along and it uses, would you say, it's fair to say that for the most part, it, there's a handful of sets, but I think that all of them are very much like interior sets, you know, uh, all of it has a feel of you're either on the plane or you're in these sort of rooms, uh, people are either at like sort of uh, uh, meetings or on or at, at a trial, that sort of thing. So very much visually speaking, there's not a lot of, of visual panache. I would say that most of the scenes involving the planes or the rockets or stuff like that, most of that looks like stock footage to me. Would you agree? I would uh, say it's, it, it's it, kind of, it kind of feels like it's just shot in a, uh, not a Hollywood, but it's just shot in a movie hall. And they kind of fashioned a plane around a room. Right, and then some of the scenes of, of of planes running or moving are clearly like B roll that they pulled off of a back lot somewhere, you know, that somebody had in canisters and like here, here you go. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost that. like the uh, the common uh, uh, film footage that you'd see like in an Italian giallo or a Diodato film or something where it's oh, there's a hawk. You know, yeah, it's it, not it, as random as a Diodato film, <laughs> where, where it's just there because he had it in Ed Wood, where he needed to put, he had buffalo footage, so by God, we're going to have buffaloes. Uh, and that's the thing I would say about this. This movie's directed by Reginald LeBorg, who actually, uh, he's, done a, he's done a decent amount of stuff. He did a lot of TV work. He directed episodes of Maverick and things like that. So he had a lot of of chops on television, you know, but I, I did I, experience. I, I did notice from here, one of the films two years later, he did was diary of a madman. Yes. Diary of, mm -hmm. And then actually, or much earlier than this in 44, he did um, one of the uh, mummy, the mummy's ghost with uh, when La the, the one that had like carried John Carradine and John Lon Chaney Jr. Oh, did it. he? I didn't realize like that, that series. Yeah. Which I always liked that when the mummy's ghost is kind of a fun one. So he, the, the bottom line is the reason I mentioned those things is that he's he's pretty skilled at putting together a story and using and using the low budget uh, in such a way where it still feels pretty 
uh, seamless. It doesn't distract from the story. I think you'd agree that the story that they're trying to tell, they tell pretty well. I think the acting is at a very at a serviceable level. Again, were this a Twilight Zone or an Outer Limits, I don't think we would balk at it or be surprised. Uh, Outer Limits ran for an hour. It started in 1963. Twilight Zone had a fourth or fifth season that ran hour episodes. Now, granted, both of those probably equated more to 45 minutes than 70. But I would, I mean, this, this you trimmed it up a little, it would feel right at home on either one of those shows. Yeah. I, 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 have a, I have a little asterisk on my note that says, some hammy, over-the-top acting, stiff at times, but probably got about as much out of his actors as he could. Yeah, yeah, they, they weren't working with, uh, I don't think he had some of the TV veterans that would run through the Twilight Zone or things like that, or even the Outer Limits, you know, they would they'd get a decent amount of, of decent actors there, people like Martin Landau, and they would get, you know, uh, William Shatner and things like that. Not that Shatner is any, uh, he's no stranger to over acting or hammy acting. But even for, even for this time frame, you could have got Leslie Nielsen and they didn't. <laughs> you could, I don't know that you had that budget. Cause this definitely no. feels like a, a, now the thing I will say that I think it has going for it, it builds its mystery relatively well. You don't, I didn't anyway, necessarily see everything that was coming. Uh, as they as they build into the mystery, so it feels like you're reading this kind of creepy pulp, amazing stories tale. Then when they get to the second half, where they have all gone somewhere, and now they are in a, you know, there is an element you mentioned, a morality element. There's an element of being on trial, which I actually thought was pretty interesting because at that point in time, even though a lot of this appeared in science fiction novels and pulp stories, I don't think you saw as much of this in film. And it wasn't until the Twilight Zone started to delve into this of humanity on trial. It's kind of one of those stories. I thought that the way they handled that was pretty well. Uh, it, it, it kind of harkened back to a, like a day the earth stood still or something like that. To me, what happens with the story is there just isn't quite a, even at 70 some minutes, it feels like they don't have quite enough meat on the bone here. So when they reveal what's actually happening, there seems to be a very clear resolution. You know, we kind of know what has to happen. But I still appreciated it. I thought, I think it's an enjoyable movie. It's one that you can kind of watch with uh, a younger audience. And I think it's a nice example of a kind of thoughtful, intelligent, without the action science fiction story. Here's how you can tell a, a kind of creepy mystery without resorting to all the laser guns and explosions and alien invasions that you were very rampant around the time this movie would have been released. Uh, we wouldn't balk at a kind of slower burn, intelligent, like chamber piece science fiction movie now, but I don't think they were as popular, at least not uh, in the cinema or not on the big screen. They were much more popular on television. So I like this. I, I, I give it about a six. Yeah, I give this a six and a half. Six and a half out of ten. I think it's one that you could give a thirteen-year-old, and a thirteen-year-old who's kind of seen some some movies, and then he watches this and he goes, "You know what? It's obviously not even two thousand and five, you know, level, but it it does have a piece to it." One of the things I did appreciate that as I was watching it, uh, full disclosure, I was doing other things while I was watching it, so you don't always pick on every single detail, but as you watch it, you don't even realize the little crumbs that they're laying in the dialogue of the characters until a certain point where it all comes together. And you're like, ah, okay, that's why they were rambling on about this while they're sitting at their de at their seats. You know, I, I got that part. And there is a moral dilemma that comes up. And at a certain point, I realize, is this a reference to something that very obviously happened 16 years earlier? 
you know, I think that's a very safe bet. I think that many, uh, it's interesting though, the way it's handled here, because this is exactly the twilight zone always handled stories in the wake of, of the, of the nuclear weapon, right. Uh, in a thoughtful human centered way and Hollywood handled it in a giant bug way. (laughs) Usually. But I mean, the thing I appreciated is there was no Edward cheesy, uh, um, UFO flying dangling from a fishing wire. Like yes. you didn't, you, you didn't get that in this. You didn't get some guy's hand moving a model airplane. Like at least it had a certain sensibility to it. I, we probably wouldn't consider the science fiction subtle by our standards now, but I would say <laughs> that it actually kind of is subtle for the time period. You know, like we, like we talked about, this is, a, it's intended to be a story of ideas. I don't think those ideas are very deep. And I do think that they needed a better second act. Uh, it's always hard when you put humanity on trial and you have three or four characters that are sort of the stand-ins. Even when they do it a few years later in Planet of the Apes, you know, they have to work really hard to make that segment of the film not feel a little ham-handed, you know. I, and I, I don't think they were as skilled at doing it. <laughs> I think film. I think the film could have benefited from the person who was leading the trial being like Ernest Borgnine. I think it could have really added something to that movie, you know. Well, I, yeah, what you're you're kind of calling for is that that's what that's what this movie is lacking across the board is sort of star power, and I think that this director was had worked in a lot of movies and television where he already had that going in, right? You can come in and you can do an hour show where all the characters are established. You know, we already have James Garner on Maverick and things like that. We already have our stars in place. We have the, the, the basic expectations that you have from week to week. And so here he's kind of creating this world and the story out of whole cloth. And I, he just didn't have enough of those elements, the stars and the interesting characters to drive it all the way home. But you know what? I, I, it's a lot better than most of the things that we've pulled off YouTube or two. Oh, oh, absolutely. Like the um, pilot reminded me of like the stand in for Hugh Beaumont in leave it to beaver. Like yeah. He, yeah. He's that kind of actor, but you know what? Again, we've seen a heck of a lot worse than this. It's actually watchable. I was texting with Nathan earlier. I said, I can see myself watching this again. Yeah, and I thought about watching some of my kids too because we've, we've taken in most of the Twilight Zone episodes. And what I like about this is it does leave these questions open um, at a very basic and at a younger age. The science fiction, that very broad science fiction with some very broad ideas, it can open the door for a lot of conversation. You know, it's less complex, so it's very easy to kind of latch onto what they're talking about here. So, so Twilight Zone, in fact, did have an episode with a bunch of people on a plane that kind of disappeared. There's a classic episode with a creature on the wing of the plane. That's not this kind of story. But they, uh, and there were some very TV movies that kind of exist in that world. And of course, Stephen King did a whole short story called The Langoliers that also involves people going somewhere else. But uh, like you said, this has that moral sensibilities in Twilight Zone. And you, 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 I was going to say, you could even lump this ever so slightly into the time travel category. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and um, what, and what, and what this needed were some snakes. Some snakes uh, on that plane. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, um, the next movie I have has uh, it, it doesn't have any snakes, nor does it have any really thought involved. <laughs> but my, I w- I'm going to cover one that I saw, and then we can jump into another one that we, we watched together. Uh, I, when I just got a chance to catch and watched um, with my my kids, uh, it came out earlier. It came out the end of last year, actually, two theaters, and it's a movie that, uh, as silly as it is, probably would have made a perfectly fine matinee theater viewing, but unfortunately wasn't able to do that. This is Monster Hunter from 2020, uh, directed by Paul 
W.S. Anderson, that, as everyone knows, is not Paul Thomas Anderson of, of There Will Be Blood and Magnolia fame. This is the Paul W.S. Anderson who, early on in his career, directed a lot of fun, I think, um, kind of B movies like Mortal Kombat. Well, uh, B movies with sometimes A budgets. Mortal Kombat, Event Horizon, Soldier with uh, Kurt Russell. He did the first Alien vs. Predator movie. I don't know that any of those movies are classics. I know a lot of people really enjoy Event Horizon. But I did enjoy them as sort of, again, kind of second-tier, um, fun, kind of goofy beer and pizza movies, right? Uh, then he got involved with the Resident Evil series, and he's in a lot of his movies, it felt like he was building towards how can we take a movie and synthesize it completely into a video game to the point where the cuts are so rapid, the action is almost incoherent, the plot makes almost no sense. And uh, I stopped watching the Resident Evil movies, you know, probably about halfway through for that reason. I know he didn't direct every single one. He did a really out there version of the Three Musketeers, and he did... Um, I believe he also directed Pompeii, which was not a good movie, at least in my opinion. And now we have Monster Hunter, which is based off a video game by Capcom that's one of these multiplayer uh, open world games where you can kind of hunt monsters together in this fantasy world. It involves flying airships and talking cats and lots and lots of giant monsters, a lot of them giant winged things and uh, dinosaur-like creatures. And I've played the video game, and the video game is actually a lot of fun because you can work cooperatively, and you run through this environment, and it's very immersive, and these creatures look great, and it can be so immersive that I, you know, I almost uh, uh, sprained my ankle last year. Yes, I almost sprained my ankle playing a video game. This is stupid of me. Uh, because I was stand, I didn't realize I was standing up playing, and then when I went to, to step off from it, my leg had gone numb. So <laughs> it is immersive enough that uh, that you get caught up in it. This The only thing that the movie version numbed was my brain. And it's big, it's silly. Mia Jovovich, which was in most of the Resident Evil films, and has, has said, hey, I took the first Resident Evil as a joke and I got a steady gig out of it. And uh, she seems to still be in that mindset. But she's in the film, Tony Jaw from Awing Back, and uh, he's... He's done a lot uh, in the in the field of martial arts, and he's also been in a lot of films. Uh, he was just recently in one that he was not so good in called Jiu-Jitsu. I know you saw that one, Bill. Oh, boy. Yeah, oh boy. so this is quite a cut above Jiu-Jitsu. However, uh, with the, with a bigger budget like this, you'd expect a little bit more from it. And from, from a very popular video game, you might hope that they would have made a better movie. Uh, that being said, the budget, like the budget on this was like $60 million. So at $60 million, I'm always surprised what can get on screen and then what didn't go into the script. <laughs> but the movie opens up with this really kind of fun, goofy, perfect, like, schlock movie sensibility of a, of a big, rugged pirate ship adorned with all of these teeth and scales that have clearly been pulled off the hides of these giant beasts. And it is not sailing the ocean, but it's sailing a desert. So it's a giant ship sailing on the sand. They don't really get into how that's working, but it's happening. And they are tracking these giant dragon worms that are twisting themselves through the sea. Uh, Ron Perlman is the captain of the ship, and he looks for all the world like the live-action version of the Heat Miser from that old Rankin-Bass cartoon. <laughs> like, down to the point that I sent Dave Becker a picture and said, isn't this the Heat Miser? So uh, you're in a, and, and there's a talking cat that is a, basically their hibachi chef on the, on the ship. And so you're in the mood for something really silly. And then suddenly it, it flips to our world. And you've got your typical group of military people 
led by Mia Jovovich, out in the desert, and they come across an anomaly that pulls them into this other world where they meet Tony Jaa. At this point, the movie slows down, and it's almost nothing but the sci-fi channel kind of action that you see. Now, granite special effects and the direction are a little bit better. Uh, some people have actually, I think, you, we're getting to the point, because Paul Thomas, uh, not Paul Thomas, because Paul Anderson has taken his like style of filming to a point where I would say every single action scene even if it lasts only for a minute, has about a thousand cuts. I've never seen so many cuts. It's to the point that I know there are people out there, there who take this auteur theory that you know his movies are something special just because there clearly is a lot of work put in them. But it seems like the whole point of the work is to make the movie feel as frantic and it's kind of numbing after a bit. The movie picks up in the middle because once a lot of the team have sort of been spoiler, eradicated, you're left with me, Jovovich, and Tony Jaa, who can't speak each other's language, and they're going through all the typical riffs you see on it, on a situation where two characters who aren't necessarily friends are stuck in an environment where they have to work together, uh, down to a scene where, and they don't speak the other's language, so there's a point where Tony Jaa is hopped up on Hershey bars that she has fed him, and he needs more Hershey bars, and she has no more Hershey bars to give him. So this is the level of the drama that's taking place in this movie. But when they team up in this almost hell on the Pacific kind of midsection of the movie to fight one of these monsters, I kind of got into it a little bit uh, as much as you can. You know, the special effects are okay. Even so, I still miss the days of Harryhausen. The monsters in this movie don't look half as good as the monsters in an earlier movie this year, Love and Monsters, which is a much, much better movie. Eventually, Ron Perlman, the ship, and the cats show back up for a giant showdown with this very impressive-looking dragon, although I think it looks about the same as the dragon that showed up in the video game. So if you're a person who really enjoyed the video game, you might get something out of it. If you're a person who just enjoys video game sort of action-centric movies, this one is much more coherent than the Resident Evil movies. It's a little bit closer to the kind of work he was doing with Soldier and Mortal Kombat. You know, I enjoyed myself to a degree, I have to admit. it. You turn your brain off. Even as a critic, you can kind of take this for what it is. Mia Jovovich, over the years, all the way from you know Fifth Element on, has kind of gained in her screen presence some. And I've come. To, she has a lot of charisma going on, and I really enjoyed the sequences with she and Ja. They they had a lot going on together. Perlman's just sort of cashing a paycheck. I mean, they, they asked him on a set of one of these movies. They said, "Why do you take these roles?" And he said, "What can I say? My wife likes her shoes." So I think she got some good shoes out of this. I give this about a five point five. Really, that's that might even be a little generous. Five point five, and I'd say it's a low priority rental if you are uh, if you're someone who kind of enjoys these sort of big silly action movies. I'm going to enjoy. Show, watching it with my kids again at some point you know they they got a kick out of it but um not none of us liked it as much as love and monsters all righty now that's interesting because i know that some of these video game movies i mean either go really really strong i mean you get a silent hill franchise that did really well and had some creeps and scares or you get you know super mario brothers and, and it could be anywhere in between right so they're always they're always a crapshoot Yes, the caveat here is that I like Super Mario Brothers way more than Silent Hill. So you take that for what it's worth. I think Super Mario Brothers is a glorious train wreck of a movie, but I find it very watchable. I don't know. Have you seen it, Bill? 
I think I've seen parts of, but I don't know that I've sat from X. The minute that movie comes to Tubi, it's going on our VOD roulette. It has to eventually, <laughs> but it seems so obscure. I, I'm trying to find it. So is, is that the one with Bob Hoskins? Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo and Dennis Hopper plays King Koopa. <laughs> okay, Samantha Mathis is in the movie. Fisher Stevens is in the movie, and the, they don't even they don't even deal with the fact that it's turtles and mushrooms. The plot involves that when the comet that killed the dinosaurs hit the Earth, it split the world into an alternate dimension that looks like dinosaur. Blade Runner, where dinosaurs grew up on the same evolutionary track as humans. I mean, how can you hate that? Uh, now, I, I was going to say, I'm thinking of those silly hats. Silly hats. There were a lot of silly hats in that movie, and there was a de-evolution gun. And I believe that Lance Henriksen got turned into snot. And uh, <laughs> so, and I'm and just talking about it makes me want to watch it again. So uh, I know that they played said not said's walk like the dinosaur in that movie. Oh I think gosh. more than once. So. <laughs> But Silent Hill, I, I thought Silent Hill was decent too. It was. It was, it was decent. It's it's more in your traditional horror or even actiony sci-fi than it is, you know, silly. But. Yeah, there was a little more. Christoph Gans is a little bit more of a. Uh, he's a little more stylish than Anderson. But again, there's a moment when Ja and Miyovich get into fisticuffs, and I was actually astonished not in how good the fight choreography was, but how no single shot of that fight lasted more than four seconds. I. Swear where he must have had 30 cameras trained on them and he cut it up and he just took his scissors, cut about 80 frames and taped it together and he had a fight. Because I I was looking at it and I was astonished. Like, I don't know that I've seen this many cuts. Just boom, 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 boom. There's something to it. I mean, I don't know if that's, it's. I don't know if it's art, but it's something. All righty. Well, I was going to jump in just, so the movie I'm going to talk about has probably been out, I'm going to estimate two, two and a half months. And on IMDb, it says 2019, but up until about a week ago was the first time I watched it. And it was St. Maud, which IMDb has classified as drama slash horror slash mystery. And that is actually all accurate. It's not a movie that fits into a nice little package. The IMDb description is follows a pious nurse who becomes dangerously obsessed with saving the soul of her dying patient. Well, sort of, I guess. But it's one that's, you know what? It's tough to put into any one category because it does have elements of drama. It does have elements of horror. It does have elements of mystery. It also has some supernatural elements to it. And sorry, uh, I'm just finding my notes here for it. <laughs> no problem. Uh, uh, let me see here. Oh, okay. It's because it's before my Evil Dead stuff. St. Maud. Okay. Three, two, one. Okay. And it is all over the place. The story is not cohesive to X to Y. You kind of get veered off a little bit. It's directed by Rose Glass. And it stars Morphid Clark who you might know from Crawl or Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Those were the two that I knew. Has Jennifer Eel, E-H-L-E, who is in Zero Dark Thirty and Pride and Prejudice, the actual Pride and Prejudice, ironically. And Lily Knight, who has been in a lot of different things, most notably Coronation Street. Now, this is a, a British film, so if I butchered the names, I very much apologize. So off the bat, it sets a dark 
eerie mood with the music and the colors and the shadows. It's very much a senses film. It doesn't move too fast. Nothing in this film moves too fast. We get to know a religious healthcare worker. Uh, the character's name is Maud, obviously. And we get to know that she's working for a woman who's fighting cancer. And the woman is deep into her cancer treatment and needs help in all areas of her life, feeding, clothing, uh, eating, uh, washing, that sort of thing. So anything a, a normal healthcare nurse would do, but let's just say Amanda, the character, she's got some spunk. She's not your everyday 80 year old cancer survivor. Who's laying in bed. She likes to smoke. She's a lesbian, at least at times she's a lesbian. She likes to be in the uh, accompaniment of women of the night, let's just say. And so Maud has a religious tint to her, and she's trying to steer her away from that type of lifestyle. The movie is slowly paced. Uh, there's a lot of internal dialogue, uh, prayers to God. Maud's apartment has... Uh, a cross and pictures of Mary and Jesus all over the wall and the Holy family all over the wall. And so she comes off as this pious, almost, you know, nose up above what Amanda is. And she's trying to not necessarily convert her, but kind of get her to steer the right path. Cause if she's at the end of her life, you know, if the, if the back 40 is your best back 40, that's the way you should go. But Amanda really, really fights it. And there becomes a party where Maud has tried to steer Amanda away from a character called Carol, who's a, a prostitute, who she's kept her away, but she still gets invited back to the party. And there's a, a confrontation and Amanda slaps Maud and tells her to basically get lost, stop being my moral guardian, you're fired, out you go. It's a relationship between Maud and Amanda. There's a relationship between Maud and God. There's also a lot of introspective elements to this. There's a very strong musical score. So then you're going, well, where is the horror in this? And a lot of people will legitimately say this is not a horror film. And it's tough to argue. It's got a lot of strong dark elements to it and it's very atmospheric it's it's plodding almost at times it sets itself in a slow build but it also has that linda blair moment in this where maude floats and there's projectile vomiting and at a certain point she wants to make herself more pure and she puts tacks in her shoes and forces herself to walk around with tacks getting into her feet. It's got a little bit of the shining element to it of, you know, Jack Torrance's mental breakdown. Maybe this is a little bit of Maud's mental breakdown. So it's not your traditional film. I'm not going to give away the ending. I want you to experience it. I can see this being a very divisive film. Either you're really into it and you like it, or you think this is utter rubbish. It's not a horror film. It shouldn't be even discussed among horror fans. Ironically enough, I'm somewhere in the middle. 
there were elements to the film that I really, really liked. The atmosphere was sub was superb. I thought it was dark. I thought it was probably life in England. I mean, a lot of people think that everything's raw, raw in London, but I mean, there's like in America and in Canada, there's some down points too. This, this shows that, but it also shows some the negative points are it is slow. It is plotting. If you're not into the character, it's going to be a bore to you. And the, the horror elements are not overly strong, but they are there. Make no mistake. I would give this a seven out of 10, but I do believe Nathan probably has some other points to bring up about this. So what do you think about it, Nathan? Yeah, I think, I think that you're probably right that there are going to be some people to go back and forth. And I think that is part of its strength. Billing it as a straight horror film doesn't exactly cover it. It definitely follows more into what I kind of think of as the 70s sort of bent for, for a lot of horror films in that it is more of a psychological thriller. I think that would be the most uh, realistic description for it, but it goes a lot of places. And Rose Glass demonstrates here, I think, that she has a very strong hand as a director, a great eye for characters. You mentioned that it is, it is a slow burn. It is that, but I will also point out that the movie is only an hour and 24 minutes. So while its pace is a little bit more methodical, it just paces its story in, in, a, in a manner in which things are unfolding a little bit slowly. And I think what makes it feel slower is that even some of the things you summarized, Bill, they're not upfront elements. You know, we don't exactly know much about... Uh, Maud and where she has been and what she's going through and even how deeply her religious conviction goes for maybe the first 20 or 30 minutes. There are characters here who we don't even get the real shape of who they are for, for about 40 minutes into this film, which would put it almost halfway over by that, by that point, you know? And so I definitely think those are elements. I think it's, I think ultimately it's hard to argue that this isn't horror of a certain shade or that someone uh, disliking it simply because it doesn't fit their notion of horror. I would say then that they should probably expand a little bit because what Rose Glass does here, she creates a great ambiance. She does create a mood piece, a mood piece ca uh, coupled with a character study. I think that's really what we're looking at is a character study of a woman who's very steeped in a religious fervor. And yet, and yet, I don't think this is a movie that is necessarily sort of doing that fish in a barrel aspect of looking at a person who has deep religious conviction because Maud's religious convictions seem to be a mask or a band-aid over her previous life and her previous struggles. And as much as she seems to be trying to save this woman's soul, that also seems to be a little bit of a mask. And so Maud seems to be working out a lot of her own demons through the course of this movie. And we are left to, uh, we're left to figure whether some of these demons are literal or are they purely mental or metaphorical. And the movie keeps playing back and forth with that. It also has a darkly comic tone to it, like involving the, uh, the, 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 the tacks in the heels of her shoes. That's a very good kind of, it's a very harrowing thing to witness. And yet the way in which it's done, even the, even the finale, there is a certain element of dark, dark, very, very, very black humor to what goes on through the film. But I think if you enjoy psychological thrillers, you can really get into this one. This one, it's one of the stronger horror films I've seen this year, only because I do think that it's, it's been a little bit slow 
due to the pandemic and everything like that, that we we don't really have a lot of really strong contenders. For the first uh, 30 or 40 minutes of this film, it has a lot in common with the movie I reviewed last week called The Power, except that film, The Power, ended up being much more, I think, what you would consider your traditional horror film. It was still somewhat character-driven, but it also depended on its mood and atmosphere in a different way. That was more of a kind of haunted house thriller. And this, the haunted house, is the individual, is the character. I think The Shining is a good place to begin. Movies like William Friedkin's Bug, where the horror is all about sort of what they're experiencing. I think it works in that way. I know we, last week, we had, uh, got together with Brian Hernandez and his uh, daughter Jordan. We talked our favorite movies. And this movie came up on her list of favorites. It's not uh, one of my favorites, but I think it's a, it's a very strong first film. And Morphe Clark as Maud is fantastic. I think she's the strongest element to this movie. Jeffrey Hill is really good too as Amanda, but Clark kind of, really gives a kind of tour to force performance, I think, where she seems meek at times. And at other times, she seems the, the very opposite of meek. It's hard to get a handle on her character and exactly what her character's psychosis is. But I think it's a strong movie. And I, I really don't think it's that, uh, while there are slow elements to it, I think it's it's pretty interesting all across the board. To me, it was never, there was never something going on that wasn't of interest to me in the film. I'm going to go a little bit higher than you. I give it an eight. It's a strong recommendation for me. Uh, it's on Epics right now, uh, streaming. I think you can also uh, find it online through Amazon or something like that to, to rent. Uh, or pick up. So St. Maude for me gets an 8. I would say horror fans should check it out regardless of what side they may fall. If you do enjoy things like Ari Aster's films and movies like The Witch and The Lighthouse, you do stand a stronger chance, I think, of enjoying St. Maude. And there, the one element that I didn't bring up that I do like it is, I do like a movie with a flawed lead, where the character's flawed, yet you still kind of take their journey. Kind of like uh what was the one we did with the the uh, not the wolf of wall street the the wolf of the wolf of snow hollow yeah. the wolf of snow hollow the wolf of snow hollow has the flawed lead character that you kind of like you're not necessarily going to love mod but you you kind of want to see where the journey takes her because again she's going from the piety to back to drinking and hanging around with the guys back to piety and it kind of takes you on a weaving journey and you get the feeling, too, she is not, obviously, very early on, you get the idea she's not a reliable narrator. And so that that adds interest to the film. But I think that it expands the idea of what a horror movie can be, and I'm always up for movies that do that. Absolutely. So, Nathan, what is the first one that you think the audience will want to hear, or at least you're prepared to talk about. And we're going to talk about Ben Wheatley's new movie, In the Earth. Now, I saw In the Earth back at Sundance Film Festival, which was actually online this year. And so I did get an opportunity to uh, see quite a few films. And if you want to hear more about what I thought about a lot of those movies in general, I actually did an episode with um, Horror Movie Podcast with uh, Wolfman Josh over there, and you can check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. And we talk in the earth we also talked several other movies that we caught at the sundance film festival and those movies we're now just getting to the point where many of those movies are just starting to roll out and we're starting to see them get actual uh releases turns out this was the first one i'm not surprised i think i even said then that i expected in the earth would probably be one of the the earlier movies that we would end up seeing released 
because Wheatley has done quite a few movies, he's done uh, one of his earliest movies, Kill List, is an excellent horror film, uh, in my opinion. He's also done Sightseers, A Field in England, which, Bill, as you remember, we covered on uh, Land of the Creeps. We came on, we did mind-bending movies, which is exactly... Yeah, I- <laughs> be, be careful of what mushrooms you eat. <laughs> right. Always, always a good rule. And that movie definitely falls into the mind bending. Uh, he also did High Rise, which is a very interesting adaption, uh, is a very interesting adaptation of a J.G. Ballard novel. Uh, that one. That one's uh, got a bit of a dystopia feel to it, a little bit of a Kubrickian feel as well. It's all worth, they're all worth seeing. Now, more recently, Wheatley has done movies like uh, most recently, Netflix, uh, Rebecca, which I was a little disappointed by only because it just felt so much more conventional. And it's weird to see that uh, Ben Wheatley is now up to direct The Meg 2, which is it's, it's, it's almost intriguing just because it seems like such a weird fit. For, and what uh, what will he do? What will he do with more than $100,000? Like, right. What, well, are we going to get a, a $25 million budget? What's he going to do with that? Right, I'd almost like to see Ben Wheatley direct one of those six-headed shark attack movies, you know. <laughs> I, I want to see it's going to be like psychedelic sharks or something. But anyway, In the Earth is one of those films that feels like a return to form, very specifically shot during the pandemic, is done on a lower budget, but tries to have, because Bet Wheatley's been making movies for a little bit now, it has that sheen of a larger production. You know, it looks a lot more uh, expensive than it probably is. A lot of it does take place in the woods again. And it's a movie that's made in the Ben Wheatley wheelhouse. It's almost like a reminder after Rebecca that, hey, you know what? I still have this very specific penchant for doing this very specific kind of thing. And like a lot of directors who find this one niche and they kind of stay in it. Uh, directors like Wes Anderson come to mind, Terry Gilliam, where we have a very specific look. Now, the thing about Wheatley, a lot of his movies don't necessarily feel exactly the same. In the Earth definitely kind of feels like a Ben Wheatley movie. And the plot is very... Uh, it's straightforward to a point, and then it's also esoteric. It does take place really during the pandemic and or a pandemic it is never identified that it's the it's the one that we have been living through in the real the real world but Joel Fry plays Dr. Martin Lowry and he's been isolated during the pandemic but then he ends up going out into the woods he's been called out there by an old colleague who uh, Olivia Wendell who's out in the wilderness and she has contacted him so he's out there to find her she's far out there so he ends up going with alma who's a park ranger she's played by alora torsha and they go out there to locate wendell who is played by Haley squires we're not quite sure what the relationship between fry and squires is we know that uh they were colleagues at one point but he's she hasn't been no one's been able to reach her so the first part of the film is Lowry and Alma making their way through the, the woods and encountering some strange uh, figures, things that don't quite see, you know, seem a little off. Again, we're getting a, a few elements of the trippiness here, but not a lot. There's definitely some feeling that something is off in the wilderness. That once they get there, they end up uh, getting knocked out, and then they end up 
in the proximity of a guy named Zach, who is been out in the woods way too long. He's played by Reese Shearsmith. And Bill, you'll remember Reese Shearsmith was the lead in Field in England. And he did as wild and as weird as he got in that film. He's doing just about the same thing here. And at the point when this happens, we start to see some foot trauma in this film that just gets steadily and progressively and almost darkly humorously worse to the point that uh, you almost feel like you could be watching a Saw film or almost a torture film. There's one segment of this movie where the violence is wince-inducing and uh, the tone changes. So you have this feeling of these two characters at the mercy of the Shearsmith character, and you're not quite sure what his agenda is. We also, we're not sure why he's out there and if he has any relationship to Olivia or if... Uh, he may be responsible for why no one has heard from Olivia. So eventually Olivia comes into the story and all along we've had these seeds planted of a sort of folklore mythology about what forces may be out here in the woods. And it's interesting because Shearsmith starts telling them about standing stones and about a potential alchemist that used to be in these woods. And if you have seen a field in England, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, is this the 200 years later, you know, sequel to A Field in England? and uh, Or the 100 years sequel to A Field in England? And so then we kind of jump into the trippiness. We have flashing lights. We have some very ambient, strange sort of sounds that, that permeate the film, not just on the soundtrack, but they are actually in the woods themselves. And we get this idea that there is a force in the wilderness and that that Olivia has been trying to make contact with it. And where the movie goes does start to feel a little bit like a Tarkovsky movie or maybe even a little, it's got a little bit of 2001 sprinkled in there. It definitely has the feeling. Does it, does it have a little bit of Jodorowsky? Yeah, I don't know if it goes quite Jodorowsky, but it does. It definitely falls into that vein of, movies that are attempting to have both a naturalistic feel. There's a lot of nature in this film. There's a lot of feeling of the real world and a a real world sensibility. And then the layers start to get peeled back to something that is more uh, esoteric and a little bit more out there, uh, just a little bit more psychedelic. And at that point, the movie's either going to sort of capture you with its stylistic elements or it's going to lose you and I kind of got into it because I started to when they start talking about these forces and these legends and something involving something called Parnig Fag which it's either some sort of ominous spirit in the woods or maybe it is some ancient witch or warlock Uh, we're not entirely certain there's feelings of a lot of different movies you even get a little bit of almost a John Carpenter vibe to this any kind of story where you have human beings attempting to connect to something that is beyond their understanding there was a movie from a few years back called They Remain and it has a lot of similarities to that that film but I think Wheatley here manages to make this a little more visceral he gives it a little bit more kick he does include some gore he has a few moments that are going to connect with the horror fan even if the culmination of this film feels a little bit more maybe sci-fi than it does fully horror but I enjoyed the ride do I know what the ride meant I'm not entirely certain but I had a similar feeling with Field of England where it's almost meant to be taken in 
and absorbed. If I have any complaint, it's that this movie doesn't feel as fresh as Kill List. It doesn't feel as fresh as Field in England because it almost does feel like it's playing into the Ben Wheatley template. We do know there's a template now. We know that this film, in its originality, resembles other movies that he made, and so therefore is a little less original. And yet, I think that I, I haven't seen the film a second time yet, but I think that it is a great sensory ride. It makes you think about creepy things. It makes you think about our relationship to these, uh, to the forces we might not be able to see and if they exist at all. And I love when a movie can transport me in that way. So for me, this is an eight. It's one of the stronger movies I've seen this year as a horror film. If you're a Ben Wheatley fan, I think you're going to dig it. You're going to get into it. I Again, the same sort of conditions that we, we placed on St. Maud are, do apply here in the sense that this isn't going to be a horror film that definitely looks like a horror movie at every moment that's there. You do get some gore. You get some actually almost queasy-inducing gore. But it's not about the gore. It is a very uh, it, it's a it's a movie that's meant to be digested, not like not digested as in acid or shrooms, but you're you're gonna have to stick with it a little bit, and it's a movie that sort of washes over you. So it is about the experience. I highly recommend it. I I think that it's a movie that everyone's going who enjoys Wheatley's work and who enjoys these more uh, surrealistic sort of films. You're gonna like this. It does have some things in common with Annihilation. It's not nearly as good a film as Annihilation. It also uh, doesn't have as maybe as many mainstream connection points as Annihilation. But I love the performances. I love what Wheatley was doing. I wish he had gone a little bit further. For me, the, the they don't fully unwrap this one. You know, the apple is still being peeled as the movie ends, and I don't mind a vague ending. But I feel as if. We're only halfway into this journey when it ends. Well, as somebody who's seen a little bit of Ben Wheatley, I really liked uh, A Field in England. I definitely want to check this one out. Kind of sounds like it's got elements of The Wicker Man meets Shrooms meets The Void. Like kind of a little bit of all that kind of mixed together. So. Yes, and a little and 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 more esoteric than any of those films, particularly Shrooms and The Void, which I think did be did follow a more uh, naturalistic horror template. Certainly, uh, I can see elements of the Wicker Man there. And again, we mentioned Tarkovsky. There's definitely a feeling of the mystical and the magical kind of coming up against the realm of the real, the the, the world of science. But uh, I do it. It's an it's an original film, and Wheatley again demonstrates that he has a really great handle on how to create a mood and a sensibility that kind of, it's hard to shake. When the movie is over, you may not be thinking about the plot, but you're thinking about the experience. And that's been true of all Wheatley's films. Even something that had a strong plot like Kill List, they're just the ride itself. And Clint Mansell, you mentioned The Void, and of course The Void had a really cool score. Clint Mansell is an amazing composer, and his score here is excellent. I feel like it is it is homaging some of John Carpenter's like electronic scores, but it is almost as strong as one of those. I think it's one of the best elements of the film and it's almost a character in the film. So what I, what I take from that is Dave Waugh and Jackson Rawlings. I want you to listen and watch and give us your input on the score. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, um, and, and the film too. So uh, again, in the earth gets an eight for me could have been, 
Could have been even stronger, but I think that it's nice to see Ben Wheatley in this, which I view his wheelhouse. It makes a difference that he's directing this movie. I don't know if it made a difference that he was attached to Rebecca. So what do you have next? Well, actually, I was going to make a transition of, we've seen two well-produced, well-crafted, really nicely laid out films. And I'm going to give you something that is none of those. This is one that, it was a Saturday morning. I had my five-year-old daughter on my shoulder. She's watching some junk on YouTube of people playing with slime. I don't want to watch that at all. <laughs> my kids watch a junk too. They're like, how many colors can we make this slime? <laughs> yeah, let's let's try these cookies and let's compare them to these cookies. Uh, no, I, I have no desire to watch those. So I put on my little headset and I was wanted something light. Because on a Saturday morning after a long work week, you don't want to think too much. And this one, trust me, you didn't have to think too much. And I also wanted something that kind of was a little bit of an ode to the science fiction people, because sometimes I don't think I give them enough credit. I think sometimes you're also looking to see how bad of a movie can you can you find? <laughs> have we built this one up enough, people? Yes, this right. is from 1967, Zontar, The Thing from Venus. And IMDb gives it a 3.2. God bless anybody that gave it more. And, and it was unrated because it didn't get a theatrical release. And it was actually, I didn't realize, a television movie from December 1967. And it was put out by American International, as we know, put out the low-budget kind of horror, Vincent Pricey kind of films. But they actually had a television contract with one of the networks, or I forget, a syndication deal. And they had to have so many hours of programming. And this was literally added on to pad the hours of programming. And uh, Nathan and I kind of coerced to watch this. And he was telling me it, they made this for $30,000 or something. I think it was $22,000. i am looking at the INDB thing here. Yeah. And it shows. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time dissecting this. Other than to say the poster on IMDB is awesome. I would absolutely love that poster in my basement framed up. You got a $60 frame and a $12 movie. And that's what you're going to end up with. I don't know who decided to take it upon themselves to make a, a new poster for Zontar, but it's fantastic, but in no way reflects the film <laughs> that you were talking about. And anybody who's listened to this podcast knows we've been sucked in by Roger Corman more than once. Yeah. But, and there is a link to Corman, but I'll get to that in a minute. This was directed by somebody called Larry Buchanan, who did a few things. His IMDb uh, curriculum vitae, uh, vitae has a bit. Uh, he did It's Alive and something called The Loch Ness Horror. He did a whole bunch of schlocky stuff. Uh, the one actor that you might know is John Agar or Agar. And among the movies he was in. He's literally the one actor you will know <laughs> if you know anyone. <laughs> if you know any of them. The one that is coming up in the next episode we release, he was in 1976 King Kong. Uh, he was in the cult classic, well, classic in air quotes, uh, the mole people. Uh, he was also in, a, he was also in, in the forties and fifties, a bunch of John Wayne films. Yes, so yeah. he, he was in uh, the sands of Iwo Jima. He was in Ford Apache. He was in at least three or four John Wayne so John Wayne obviously liked the guy. And whenever the director said, can we have somebody who's a lesser character on the cheap? John Agar got the role. Uh, there was also the actress Susan Bierman, I'm going to say, who is actually still acting, or at least was as of a couple of years ago, because she was in the movie Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler and was in the Gilmore Girls. 
So anybody that's watched those shows has seen her. Pat Delaney, who was in Days of Our Lives and The Swiss Family Robinson. And the other actor is Bill Thurman, who was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So it does have some people that piece them together have been in some stuff, but this is not the quality. The individuals are better than the sum of its parts. That's basically what you're going to get out of this. So here's what I might take of it. I probably talked about it too much already. A space (laughs) science, a, a space scientist has equipment at home that allows him to contact an alien spaceship from Venus. So there's this guy, it opens up, there, uh, there's a, sci- um, a space uh, science uh, gathering where their scientists work, they're a government organization, they're doing their work, and they're obviously all in the aeronautical field. But one of them takes it to the next level. He has some of this equipment in his living room. And he's contacting somebody or something out there from Venus. And he's determined to work with him to get him to Earth. And it turns out that Zontar is this alien. And Zontar is part of a a tribe, you might call it, a group of peoples who were on another planet and they died out. And the few survivors are looking to reestablish themselves on another planet. And they've somehow contacted the scientist to get onto Earth. Seems fast, uh, fascinating. I know you're riveted by this. Now, when I was watching it, I started going, I know this plot. I know yep. this plot. Yes. <laughs> and, and so I was sitting there going, yeah, 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 yeah. Ah. And I started thinking about Lee Van Cleef. He jumped out at me right away. Anybody who's seen from the 1956 Roger Corman, there's your connection. Roger Corman film, It Conquered the World, which has one of the cheesiest monsters in history. It's like an upside down ice cream cone. <laughs> looks like it's made from a mop and some extra rubber or something. Yes. It, this, the, the original also has Peter Graves. And so anybody who used to watch biography on A&E, Peter Graves was the white haired man that introduced it. He was around forever and he did a lot of cheesy stuff. Now that one was made on the cheap by Roger Corman. This takes it a 10th of that budget. It makes the It Conquered the World monster look like Harryhausen, Zontar does. <laughs> so I'm going to quickly whip through a couple of what I'll call highlights. Dr. Keith Ritchie works at a space research station, but also has his own, own equipment at his house. It's low budget and wonky. Zontar is shutting down the world's power and is putting the world under its dominance. And he's working with Dr. Ritchie. Now, it has some of the worst lines in history, and I had to write them down. So when the scientists are looking at the scientific equipment that's in Dr. Ritchie's living room, he's with another buddy who's one of the scientists at the science station, and he goes, say, that's a powerful-looking set. I've never seen anything like it before. And so then he goes, do you know what you're hearing? And the reply goes, some kind of progressive jazz. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, really? Some kind of progressive jazz? Or I wonder what effect this power failure has on my wife's big mouth. Ha ha ha. And you're like, yeah. oh, good God. The it's, problem it's, is, it's, it's not even fun, bad lines that, like, they thought they were fun writing them. I guess somebody did. But yeah. the problem right there is with that, that very thing. 
there's nothing in this movie. The lines, you're right. They're some of the worst things I've ever heard, but they're not memorably bad. In the moment, I'm like, wow, who wrote that? But I'm not going to remember any of these lines on the level of like, stupid, stupid minds, like the Ed Wood, you know. Well, well, well let's let's put it this way. I had to, it's on, it's on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, and it's, and the copyright has probably lapsed. I had to rewind it about three or four times so I could get it down because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you bothered. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I wanted to for the audience's point of view. And 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 the thing is, this Zontar they send down these aerial bats, alien bats, or bird-like creatures. They look like stuffed see- owls, like someone dropping stuffed owls. <laughs> and you can literally see the fishing line whipping these oh. things around. And it's, it has what looks like some kind of, you know, like you get those thumbtacks where they open up to hold paper together. Well, it's in the back, it's in the back of the general's neck and it infects him and it starts to infect everybody else. And they, oh, please, I'm not going it, to, it's not worth my time. We finally see Zontar at the end. And I know we're a spoiler free, but this thing looks like a combination of an alien and a bad Dracula. Like this thing oh, it's is just, it's... oh, like it's some good. He's got like a, a $3 costume at the shop that they have at the back that they're just hoping somebody rents like this. Roger is... Corman put a lot of stuff on screen. I don't, I'm not convinced he would have put that on screen. The, the only monster that I think gets near it is one of my all time favorite worst movies is the creeping terror. And at least the creeping terror was funny. This well, was the just creeping terror awesome. is a much more enjoyable film. It's an actual movie. Like, it's dated now, and it was dated the minute it came out. The, the Trollenberg Terror. Wait a minute. I think I'm getting confused. I was thinking of The Crawling Eye. You're talking about The, oh, the Crawling terror. Eye. Yeah. The creeping creeping terror, terror is pretty, troll- is pretty trash. <laughs> it, it is trash, but at least it made me laugh a few times. This is just, oh. No, trash can be really entertaining. I, I can enjoy trash as much as I can enjoy any other movie if it's the right kind of trash. Larry Buchanan does not have a resume that has a lot of great trash on it. Although he has a resume with a lot of trash on it. Uh, and, and a lot of them were just remakes of these Corman like movies, like evasion of the saucer man was the eye creatures, which is stunningly awful. And it's even maybe worse than Zontar. I had never seen Zontar before. I was happy to have watched it, but it's really just like trivia of a bad movie. It's not unlike a lot of the other ones. We, it, it's so weird because there are definitely tears to this, and it's like, how do I, how do I review and compare this to some of the other ones we did, like the uh, the she monster or uh, the Viking women in the land of the great sea serpent? These are all just bad movies. It's just stacking them up to see which pile of crap is higher than the other one. But it's funny because if you go to IMDb, it says if you like this, you might like this, and one of the ones they have is the wasp woman. The wasp woman is vastly superior to this. Oh, it knows what it's trying to be. This movie just is inept. That's the thing. Here's the thing to take away. It's inept and it's not working. So you can kind of, if you don't mind laughing at a movie, but at a certain point, I'm no good laughing at a movie. I get bored. I'm not that mean-spirited. I want to laugh with the movie, even when it knows it's bad. Even the she-monster, when you had the lady walking backwards because her dress had split open in the back, like, I can appreciate some of the that nonsense. And I didn't like that movie. But this one's kind of even worse, if that's possible. I, I am very tempted to send the email uh, to Joel Robertson, Peter Nielsen, and Daryl Taylor at uh, Retro Movie Geek. And they do their offshoot Terror on the Tube of TV movies. Oh my gosh, don't I do am that. Very, I am very tempted to send them this one. <laughs> 
podcast. I don't know that they can do an hour and a half. Allison does. Allison Clark does uh, Terror on the Tube with them. Daryl's Daryl's a retro movie geek, but Allison does uh, Terror on the Tube. Um, Yeah, and and that It's Alive that you mentioned that Buchanan was involved in, that is not the It's Alive, the... the, the, Larry Cohen film. No, that is not the Larry it's Cohen. The, it's again, it's also called In the Year 2889, and it's a remake of The Day the World Ended, which also is a Roger Corman, looks like a turd with eyes kind of monster movie. <laughs> and again, you can have fun with those. It conquered the world, The Day the World Ended. They are fun. They're camp. You can see Corman just making stuff up on the fly. Uh, this does fall into that category, like the Vikings. Oh, I believe they made stuff planned. up on the fly. I believe this was made up on the fly. No, but I guess what I mean is there's no ingenuity to it. There's no element of of someone fighting against fight to make things work. If you get the feeling that no one really cared what happened in this movie, and then so ultimately, why do I care? It's a it's like a two point five, really. I mean, I want to go higher, but. I I like the idea of this movie and of it being a kind of bad movie. It's not a bad movie classic because you have to fight for your enjoyment. No, I, I gave this a three to be generous. I'm curious if uh, Mystery Science Theater has done this. They probably have for it conquered the world, but I don't even think they even got themselves down to Zontai. This, this is so anemic. It's, it's It'd be hard to, it's, there's not a lot to work with. I think they did do the eye creatures and that's quite humorous. I think anybody out there who's listening, watch it if you're really stuck for something and you like 1940s and 50s kind of schlock, uh, you know, like the alien invasion and the the red the red terror coming, whatever. Uh, but the poster that's been reimaged is the best thing about this movie. Yeah, and so, watch just watch it conquered the world. <laughs> it's it's literally yeah. beat for beat the exact same movie, except somehow worse. And Lee Van Cleef is, I mean, Lee Van Cleef was great as a Western bad guy, that kind of deal. He is superior to anything in this film. And and that's, I guess that's what I was trying to say about Corman. Corman has a style and a flourish to him. Even when he's making movies on the, on the fly, he has an element of a craftsman to him. I don't get the same feeling from a Larry Buchanan film. I get the feeling that, there was no one working on this movie that understood how to make a movie or maybe even what a movie actually was. So Nathan, what is the transition to your next film? Holy crap. I don't know if I can even transition. Um, the other one I have, that I really want to talk about because like I said, we have some of the other reviews. So the movie I'm going to cover is another uh, horror film and it's called Jacob's wife. It's from uh, just released last week. And it's directed by Travis Stevens, who really uh, doesn't have too much to his name yet. He did direct a movie uh, from, I think, from 2019 called The Girl on the Third Floor. I don't know. Uh, Bill, did you happen to see that film? The Girl from the Third Floor. Yeah, I saw that. It was all right. Yeah, it wasn't. To me, it wasn't a... um, it wasn't a movie I loved. I remember seeing it, and there were definitely things about it I liked. One of the things I did enjoy about the film is that it had a feeling of constantly sort of shifting its tone. And uh, one of the most interesting things about it is that CM Punk, who was almost felt like at certain points he was channeling a like sleazier version of Bruce Campbell, you know, <laughs> in that yeah. film. There was a lot of sort of physical comedy there was a lot there were a lot of body fluids in that film as well uh kind of a strange sort of haunting uh literal haunting of a house that that 
its pieces didn't quite come together for me, but I appreciated that there seemed to be a uh, a directorial vision behind it, and it went some places that movie that some films like this don't usually go. Uh, it just didn't quite come together for me. So uh, going into Jacob's Wife, I had heard some good things. Uh, it was released on VOD, but it was also playing in theaters uh, this past weekend. And I know a couple people who saw it and said, hey, Nate, you should check it out. And one of the things that struck me that sort of pushed me over the edge of deciding that, yeah, I'm going to take the plunge and check it out, is that it stars Barbara Crampton. Barbara Crampton of... The Reanimator and From Beyond uh, and uh, several other films as well worked quite a bit with the late great Stuart Gordon. And then, in addition to Barbara Crampton, also Larry Fessenden, who in his uh, latter career has actually been in several movies with Barbara Crampton, even if he doesn't always end up in the same scenes. He was in uh, We Are Still Here, he was in Your Next, that also featured Crampton. And here, though, Fessenden is kind of, and he's also, is really known, I think, primarily sort of being uh, one of those indie horror, uh, direct, I say director, but he's really, he's he's directed less films than he's produced. He's sort of one of those uh, shepherds of the genre in terms of the indie field. I think he really uh, is responsible for helping a lot of people through over the past 10 or 15 years, you know, the Ty Wests and the people like that. I think Fessenden was out there sort of helping push the younger guard of horror, particularly in the indie field, uh, the wind guards and people like that along. And I think that it uh, Fessenden is an interesting guy, though. And when he shows up in films, he's always interesting as well. His movies are interesting. He directed. Yeah, he was in, uh, I was going to say, oh, sorry. Uh, he was in the, the Dead Don't Die, which was a really interesting film. He did show up Dead Don't Die. Fessenden usually has some of the more colorful cameos in the movies that he's in. And here it's interesting because uh, I'll read the IMDb synopsis for the film and then we'll kind of get into it. Anne, married to a small town minister, feels her life has been shrinking over the past 30 years. Encountering the master brings her a new sense of power and an appetite to live bolder. However, the change comes with a heavy body count. That is definitely the plot of the film. However, the movie takes a little bit to get its... Uh, it, the movie doesn't necessarily take a, a time to get its footing, but we as the audience aren't exactly certain what uh, what the deal is as the movie begins. Uh, I will say that it starts out immediately with a pastor giving a sermon about husbands and wives from the biblical perspective with an emphasis that these are how husbands behave and these are how wives behave. However, I will say that everything that's kind of portrayed in that sermon is about what you would hear if you were at a Sunday morning service and they were giving a message about husbands and wives. It's things that I've heard many times myself. And we see the pastor, he's up front. It took me a minute to recognize this was Larry Fessenden. Fessenden, in some of his earlier roles, like in his self-directed film Habit, uh, he almost looked like a more uh, like skeevier, unkept version of Jack Nicholson. And over time, he's just developed into the latter-day, like, you know... <laughs> Uh, seedier version of Jack Nicholson as well. I took me a minute to notice him. He's clean shaven here. He's playing in a very effective way. I think he is playing this exactly this kind of small town minister who has fallen into a rhythm of doing things in a way that he prefers to do them. And that also means that 
kind of based on his beliefs and his system of behavior that he kind of does things and his wife is expected to kind of come along with him. And she almost ends up being more of a fixture of his life than as a real equal partner. I will say up front that one of the things I appreciate about the film is it and Fessenden's performance here is that it doesn't come off that Fessenden is a purposefully maniacal jerk, nor does he seem to be a, a, a despicable person who lords it over his wife. He interrupts her, he talks over her, he sort of expects breakfast to be there, but all of these things seem to be happening because he has simply fallen into the expectation that this is how things are, and he very rarely pulls his head out of his butt to look around at the world around him. That's an interesting distinction because of where the rest of the movie goes. We see also at that uh, message that in the front row is a woman who has her hands sort of clenched tight. And another time she's just playing with, with her little notice that she's been given for, for that day's church service and she's crinkling it up and she just looks lost. She looks like she doesn't know where to go next. And if there's anywhere at all for her to go and we get the feeling this ends up, this is Barbara Crampton and she is Jacob's wife. She's Anne. This is uh, Jacob Fetter and Anne Fetter. And we get this picture of a marriage that is clearly bottomed out, but it's not, it's bottomed out in such a way that there's an, there, there's not a lot of volatility going on. Everyone just seems to be doing their own thing and sleepwalking through life. Even Jacob, who seems kind of okay with this version of sleepwalking, you know, is the, there's no one here whose lives are sort of being enriched in any way. They're going through the motions. He's a pastor. He does try to look out for his flock, uh, particularly in this time where people seem to be disappearing. We have right off the bat, a young woman who comes to them for help, ends up walking home, and we find that she is attacked by someone or something, and then she goes missing. And the movie starts to move into the rhythms of a Hallmark film in a lot of ways, at least early on, I, I started to wonder how much I was going to enjoy this. Crampton, of course, she got her start even before uh, Gordon. She got her start sort of in in uh, daytime soap operas. And there's there are elements here that this is far better directed than your typical sort of soap opera or Hallmark film. But when it begins, we have Anne who's planning to get together with uh, with a co-worker, but he's also an old flame from back in the day that she hasn't seen since, uh, in, in many years, probably since high school or thereabouts. And she's, Jacob's aware she's going to meet him. He's slightly suspicious, but he also doesn't seem to worry that much. You know, it's, it's a peripheral thought. And the scenes where she goes to dinner with her, with this guy, Tom Lowe, who's played by Robert, uh, Robert Russler, these scenes have that feeling. Even the dialogue feels about on the level of a melodrama. And so I'm wondering, how much am I going to get out of this? And they end up going to this abandoned factory that they're looking to refurbish. It's part of the work that they're doing. And they're trying to, uh, it, it was an old bottling factory, I believe. And they're trying to renovate it and, and keep it so that it that it isn't torn down. And when they get there, they seem to be on the verge of consummating an affair, and that something completely different happens with sets into motion, events that bring the horror and a touch of the supernatural into this story. We do have the appearance of something or someone called the Master, which is not a religious reference to Jesus. And what's interesting about the effect that this character brings to not just the town, but to the lives of Anne and Jacob is that if it, it 
it's a disruptor. It changes things for the worse, and it maybe has the potential, if they can survive this, to change things for the better. I think it's safe to say that Anne gets a certain kind of awakening, and it's an awakening that goes beyond a, a physical awareness, and it becomes an awareness that, hey, I've been running my life in this one, this one particular uh, rut over and over again, and I have, I'm married to a man that, you know, I can't even remember why I'm married to him, and he doesn't even seem to remember himself why we're married, and I'm doing most of the things I do for him, uh, or, or who am I even doing them for? It seems like most people are doing these things because this is what we've always done. And it's interesting how the horror... There are these 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 frightful and ghastly things going on. There's also quite a level of dark gallows humor in the film. But what's interesting is how it affects both these characters. Crampton is having about the most fun I think I've seen her have since a Stuart Gordon movie. And she's asked to do things in this movie, probably has you know, gleefully agreed to do things in this movie, that we haven't seen her do, I think, since a Stuart Gordon kind of movie, where it verges on horror and comedy at the same time. This movie gets kind of... Uh, bloody, and it gets more gory than you're expecting, and yet at the same time, it has the pacing and the feel of a stage play. What really starts to work, what pulls this out of that, the trappings of a melodrama, is that there's some very, very precise performances by Crampton and Fessenden. They, I think they even overcome the way these characters, they even overcome the way these characters are written, because the one thing that distinguishes this, I think, not distinguishes this, the thing that separates this from a, so a Stuart Gordon film is that it is not nearly as well written on the page. But Fessenden and Crampton, when they really start to, when these two characters start to sort of become aware of each other again and aware of the new terms of their relationship, uh, it becomes really interesting. Crampton finds that, hey, there's a new lease on life, but it comes with a lot of dark elements. And Fessenden suddenly is thrust into this place where it's like, hey, uh, I'm I, I'm pitted against the forces of darkness. This I know about. This I can do something with. It's not giving the Sunday morning sermon. And yet, the movie kind of forces us to have both of these characters in the frame together, competing for each other's attention and competing for their roles in this, this relationship that I loved all of that stuff happening. And it elevates the horror. I think the only issue I have with the movie, it's a great treat. It's a lot of fun. I think about two-thirds of the way through, though, because of how well Fessenden and Crampton are playing off each other, that they almost wrap up most of what's going on in the film, and it continues for another 20 or 30 minutes, culminating in what I thought was an awesome final shot and final couple minutes. But it, the movie almost starts to... It gives, it gives a couple speeches, it gives a couple of bigger moments that I don't think were entirely necessary. When we get to the third act, I was ready, like in a Gordon film, where that movie would jump and hit the next level of absurdity or or commentary, or whatever it was trying to do, the movie sets this up to explore these two characters going forward, and then I just think it falls into the rhythms of the horror movie. It still has the horror plot to wrap up. Like I think I said about a movie last week, I wasn't as interested in that, but I would follow these characters through a couple other movies, and I love watching Crampton and Fessenden at their kind of full tilt intensity. And I think that, uh, that honestly, the directing on this film is a lot stronger than The Girl on the Third Floor. That Travis Stevens has elevated, uh, stepped that up here. This is a 7.5 for me. I'd say this is a definite kind of priority C for anyone who enjoys these actors and enjoys a horror movie that, that can mix some comedy in there. This is I wouldn't call it comedy horror exactly, 
but it mixes a couple different tones. I think it's successful. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. It's one that's kind of been on my radar for a while. I've seen a few people in different groups have seen it. Uh, Nathan mentioned that he wanted me to watch it, and I kind of snuck it in today. I agree with it. It's a between a seven to a seven and a half. It's an interesting film. And I like how you kind of sidestepped a few things, Nathan, because there are some things you want to go in cold with this. I will say that there is some unexpected nudity and it's not necessarily the kind that will excite you. Let's just put it that way. It's a little bit of something for everyone. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll go with that. Maybe. I Uh, mean, at first you're like, Oh, okay. There's nudity. And they're like, Oh, there's nudity. (laughs) In about a a three second thing. This is what it is. Crampton and Fessenden, I think flipped coins. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's not a top and a bottom thing. Well, maybe it well, is. It kind of it is. Yeah. Well, it is. Well, th- there's a couple elements to this that uh, Nathan didn't get to, which no big deal. Travis Stevens, the director, doesn't have a long resume of movies he's directed, but he has a long resume of things he's produced. So, for yes, example, yeah. he he, ha- he helped produce We Are Still Here uh, and Starry Eyes. Uh, it's a long list. I didn't write them all down. But if you want to look him up, he's done a lot. Uh, another actor that's in this that genre fans might know of is Robert Rustler. I first saw him, uh, Greg Morgan, my co-host at uh, Land of the Creeps, really, really likes him. He's met him, et cetera. Uh, Robert Rustler from the movie Vamp. It was one of the two guys in Vamp. He's also in Weird Science and Nightmare on Elm Street and a whole host. I also see he was in the remake of Blood Feast. <laughs> so I'm curious to see that at some point. Might be a roulette movie. And, and CM Punk was also in this film as well. So... He played the deputy. I didn't even realize until I looked it up. Um, yeah, uh, there's a, a whole different kind of flow to this film. It's almost got, I was saying to Nathan before we started, uh, almost a Jim Jarmusch kind of sensibility to it. It's well acted. It's very atmospheric and there's lots of shadows. It's weird seeing Pheasanton without a mustache. It took me for a loop for a second there. And it's Cram- weird seeing him not play a sort of like, like shady character, you know, that's typically what he does. I think he's pretty even handed with this. Yeah. He's, he's almost on the, uh, if you're doing the political spectrum, he's on the right when he's normally on the left, kind of the way he is in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there is a scene with Berber Crampton. I'll just say playing touchy feely at the window. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> um, but there is, for all your gore hounds out there, there are a couple really good gore scenes. Now, I wouldn't call it torture porn or anything, but more no. in the Peter Jackson. Stuart Gordon, I think, yeah. That, yeah. Like, it's that yeah. one minute you feel like you're watching a stage play, the next minute you're watching a bloodbath. Yeah, a literal bloodbath. Yeah, there is exactly. a lot of blood. But it's done in a fun way, kind of like... Uh, Uncle Peckerhead. If you've seen that, there's a lot of fun I was blood. Very of that much. Film too. Yeah, I think the distinction here, the thing that Gordon does in his films or did in his films, and that you mentioned with Uncle Peckerhead, is the movie introduces these gonzo scenarios, but then it's interested in how normal people would react to them. And I think that's what makes that's what generates the interest in this film is you left with these characters who seem for the most part reasonable human beings including a scene where you know relatives come over for or friends come over for a dinner party and find something very different than what they were expecting it suddenly becomes how would regular people deal with this and that's where the interest lies it's not like let's get to the next bloodbath it's how do we interject this madness and then scale it back and see how would you or i deal with it and 
I do agree with Nathan in the sense of I had mentioned to him before, after about an hour, you almost think kind of like the movie's crescendoed. And it kind of, I got this weird moment of it being, it turned into a relationship film. It came to a Hallmark film for about two minutes there. You know, they're discussing their relationship. And I'm like, this is a, a horror film. Why, why are we discussing personal relationships in a horror film? But that's such a good uh, scene, I feel like. That scene where they have that discussion because of what it represents. Because, And I don't think there's too much spoiler to say. There is a moment when you basically have something that, that is a is an aspect of real relationships but doesn't always get put forward in in films is a moment where someone kind of recognizes you know what i have you know i i am legitimately sorry i did this you know i i legitimately and it's because it's because it's cap it's captured in between these crazier moments i think that scene works it wasn't those scenes i had an issue with it's uh, it was actually that once their relationship starts to take a new turn i wanted to see where it's going to further develop and see this differences between Fessenden's perspective, you know, that poster that says, who's your master? And we have her staring off and he's standing there with a book. We, I expected to see more of the tug and pull between the religious verses, but I think that what happens in the last half of the movie, suddenly we have, oh, we've got a supernatural menace we have to wrap up. We have to wrap up the story involving the town and those characters. And even that conversation, it got kind of sidelined for me. I actually thought that that sequence was one of the better ones because it felt organic to me. It did feel organic, but I just find it weird for a horror film. But oh, it's a weird movie. <laughs> it's a weird movie. It's a now, weird movie. I, I'm doing a lot of tiptoeing around some things because there's some some things I want to say, but I'm not Me going too. to. Yeah, I'm trying to be. All I know is at the end of the film, at least me, I sat there going for a brief moment. Are they dreaming? Are they? Do they think this really did happen? Uh, is the main part of the characters in the film, are they acting as marriage therapists? Like it almost, the events bring them together. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and you don't see that very often at the end. You're kind of like, you know, they might be what they are, but they're not bad people. Which, <laughs> you know, considering the circumstances that they were in, if this is successful and I don't think this is an ultra expensive film to do, you could do a whole series with these characters in different towns across middle America. Very yeah, I, easy. I don't know that I'd want to see that, but what you're saying is that what, what, what I feel and what you're saying is this movie makes you want to see that. It makes you want to spend more time with some of these characters, particularly these two characters. And I love that that last scene, but I do think that the 20, but we had arrived at this moment Maybe about twenty minutes before. I will say this though, I th and and just us talking about it actually is making me enjoy it more. You know, I think I feel like, and a lot of that is down to Crampton, I think, and and Fessenden, but credit all around because they've made a very fun horror movie, one of the more fun horror movies I've seen this year. It's the kind of movie that we haven't, we don't get as much these lower budget movies that can be gory, that can be serious and be smart, and also be. A little bit goofy at times. And and again, Stuart Gordon was one of those guys that I don't think I appreciate him as much until last year when we went and we did his like filmography. He could do that. And not everyone can do that. And this doesn't quite reach this falls short of Gordon a little bit, but it's a good it's a good swing. And uh, man, one of the coolest scenes at the dentist office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, it yes it was. Uh I'm not going to go with any further because that would give it away. And and to say fun is, you know, it's not like fun like Gremlins. 
You know, it's not fun like Ghostbusters, but there is a fun element to it. <laughs> there are moments that have that tone of a horror comedy, and then there's moments that are a serious drama. The thing I thought was funny was when it first started out, I thought, you know, this has about the characterization and the level you'd expect from one of these like faith-based films where, you know, the wife is going to discover the Lord and everything will be great. <laughs> yeah. It's not at all. It's like the anti-version. I was waiting for Kirk Cameron to walk around the corner and say, you have found us. Yeah, but it all it does feel like this movie is playing against that type a little bit. Like it understands that that's the edge it's pushing against. But I also don't think that the I think that the movie is balanced enough that it never feels like it's attacking anybody at all. And Fessenden's character doesn't come off like some kind of one note. Uh, he's not some extreme religious conservative. He is, I believe, a religious conservative, like you pointed out. And yet you see that in most of the decisions he seems to make. When he's aware enough to do so, he does consider, oh, I have legitimate care for my wife and things like that. That's what makes him interesting as a character to watch. It, what, it's what makes Crampton's character interesting to watch. She's caught in this marriage, but there are things about it that she, she, it hasn't all been bad, you know. And I think that's, uh, that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, there's an interesting interplay with him and a couple younger town folk who like the devil's lettuce. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, I like Fessenden. It's fun to watch in this movie. He's always fun, I think. But I feel like he's there's a you don't normally get to see him um, in the in the kind of lead or in a, in a more prominent role like this. And I really enjoy that. And I I would I would I would love to see uh, Fessenden and Crampton sort of keep doing these movies together and almost have like the you know the way Crampton and Combs used to have their thing back in the day. I want to see the Crampton and Fessenden show again sometime soon. Yeah, I, I expected like Ken Foray to jump out of somewhere, you know. He, you know, he could have. He he actually could have been the uh, the the, poli the the police chief that was investigating yeah. this. You know, I I sat there and thought, man, we missed the you missed the beat on this one. Absolutely. Alrighty, so yeah, uh, highly recommended. I mean, it's not going to be on the top of your list, but it might sneak into the bottom depending upon uh, your yeah. time frame and if you kind of get into it. Yeah, absolutely. It's on Amazon right now. I think you can rent it for four or five bucks and you can buy it for like eight or something. So it's definitely, it's worth either one of those. And if you want to wait six months, no doubt it'll probably just be streaming somewhere. And so from there, I'm going to take us to a much different direction. And recently we just celebrated April the 20th, which if you do the numbers is 420. And while Marijuana isn't necessarily my thing. I'm not against it. I did it in college and I've done it from time to time. I don't smoke it anymore because I'm a non-smoker and it hits me in the back of the throat, but I will have the odd gummy now and again as a stress reliever, as they say. So I felt like I should get a movie that isn't called Evil Bong. And so I went typing, going through Tubi, my secret crush of a movie streaming service. It's not so secret. No, that's true. My 2019 <laughs> film, I found Ouija's Hallowed Night, Halloween Night. Yes. So it's Ouija's Halloween Night. It's only an hour and 15 minutes. It's not going to tax your time. The cover looks a little cool, the poster. So I'm like, okay. And what sold it for me is it's a Charles Band film. Because of course it is. A Charles Band film. It's a full moon production. Yeah, I'm going to take a look at this one. And ladies and gentlemen, is this cinematic gold? No. But is it a fun ride? 
I liked it. I thought it was enjoyable. Now, I know I know I like it a little bit more than Nathan does because we've talked to that ahead of time, but it's not too bad. And I'm not going to go through the IMDb synopsis because it's quite long. What's the point? Um, yeah, what's the point? I, I'll read you the first line. It's the eve of Halloween in Las Vegas and three enterprising young ladies are throwing a massive 420 gala. So basically three ladies... I don't know if they're from Vegas or they come into town, but they have rented out a hotel that is owned by someone who's got to be 25. How he owns this hotel, I don't know. But they're throwing this big gala. Basically, it's a weed fest, but it's a scavenger hunt. And you have to find the golden nug by following (laughs) clues. There's basically a rave and a dance party going on a lot of slinky dresses and just wacky characters and a lot of titillation, but you don't actually ever see anything. It's a teenage sex comedy mixed up with a weed film. With not a lot of sex and not a lot of weed. Yeah, not a lot of sex, not a lot of weed, but that's the elements that are there, okay? So I basically I have there's attractive girls, but the is there is what I considered a decent production value especially for a Charles Band film. He's definitely got a formula. He knows what works. He knows where to put the limited resources he has into, and he knows not what to put it into. But I was actually pleasantly surprised with the acting. No, it's not great. No, it's it's kind of like slasher level of the early 80s, but it's better than Zontar. I'll tell you that much. And and so what happens is there's a dance. People are smoking up. They're shaking their booties. They're trying to get, hook up. They're trying to go through this uh, scavenger hunt. And a woman comes in as she's known as the Baroness. And they kind of alluded to this in the beginning of the film. I think it opens in Halloween 1978. And they show something that's happened. And the Baroness comes in with this game board. Well, instead of a Ouija board, it's the weed G board. And these characters pop out as part of the Ouija board, like little gremlins. You know, anybody who loved ghoulies or spookies or critters, it's just another one of those. And a slightly lower budget, and they're kind of creepy. and But they are kind of fun and adorable. I can see some people liking them. They're going around this party, and they have until the stroke of midnight to find them, corral them, and put them back into the board. And that's all you really need to know. Uh, Oh, there is one funny moment where they go into the different rooms and one character, there's a TV going on and there's an old commercial with Sonny Bono talking about the evils of weed, which cracked me up during it. You know, there's some CGI, there's some exploding hens, uh, hens, heads. There's some heads that blow up. There's some heavy metal. If you had said exploding hens in a full moon movie, I would have expected that that would have been exactly what happened. <laughs> and particularly in one called Ouija's. Ouija's. But there's, there is also a romance angle to this, kind of like a typical 80s awkward sex comedy. Yeah, it's there. It's, there, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. But And there is a really bad ripoff of Sammy Hagar, Hagar's I Can't Drive 55. Oh, my gosh. Because they, <laughs> it is. they show... They show a speedometer and somebody says, I can't drive 55. And you think they paid for the rights of it. And it's one of those songs that it's always two notes off what it should be. So they won't get sued, but they're obviously trying to play off it. It's, it's pretty it's bad. Awful. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah. So I'm not going to give it away. Not that it really makes a big difference. 
there's the scavenger hunt, these Luigi's, and people are trying to get the little creatures back. And that's all that happens, really. Some stoned up, stoned out people, some girls in slinky outfits, and some shenanigans and hijinks, as you might say. It was it great? No. Uh, but I did enjoy the ride. This is one that Nathan texted me and said, being high would have really enhanced this movie. And it really would have. I should have had one of my gummies watching this movie because it really would have gotten me into this. I'm not one of those people who actually uh, thinks that, you know, because there are a lot of people like, oh, uh, this movie would be so much better high. And a lot of times the, with the movies that people cite are really trippy visual films, movies that have a already hallucinogenic feel to them. Movies like Mandy or 2001 or something like that. I'm like, I'm, okay, I kind of get it. But at the same time, the, the thing that's the reason people like Terry Gilliam and people like that are, are national treasures. Well, not our national treasure, but somebody's national treasure is that they, <laughs> they are creating films that you don't need to be high for because the movie's doing the mind altering work for you. So when people say, Oh, I, I just like to, this movie would be better high. Reason it works for Ouija's is if you were high, maybe these jokes would be funny. If you were high, maybe these creatures would be creepy. Maybe if you were high, you wouldn't pay attention to the fact that this is a movie plot wise that's made for like six-year-old kids, but six-year-old kids shouldn't be watching movies about smoking weed and trying to get laid. No, essentially that's what it is. Sex comedy. But mixed in with a kid's like a kid's critter movie. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it's weird. It's it's uh, uh, a ripoff of Gremlins 35 years later. It's Ghoulies, yeah, it's pot smoking ghoulies. It's that scene from Ghoulies Three, Ghoulies Go to College or whatever, where they're all sitting around smoking and drinking beer, stretched out to about it's uh it's Charles Band's version of like the twisted, like stoned out haunted mansion you know the disney ride or something it's i know what you mean i think it's pretty awful but again it's weird it's just odd it's you kind of smile because it feels like it shouldn't even exist at all you're sort of just amused by the fact it's there in front of you i watched it with my daughter beside me and she actually looked over a couple times and giggled because the characters are funny well 90 percent of this movie was made for her i think I give it a six out of 10. Watch it stoned, watch it straight, watch it with some beers. I think you can do a lot worse off to be blind find. You you certainly can do worse. And I, I like Charles Band. I like that when this film ended, it said in loving memory of John Carl Bucher, who did Troll and was also had a hand in, in, in ghoulies and things like that. And the troll connection, that what I liked about the Sonny Bono video that they were showing is it reminded me that Sonny Bono played the swinger in, in the original troll movie. <laughs> yeah, he was in, he, he, I was going to say, if anybody wants to look up something funny, look up Sonny Bono on IMDb. He's actually got a surprising amount of credits. Yeah, he was in troll. And so I thought that, that I think that that was intentional, you know, and that's the kind of fun thing in these Charles Band movies. You can kind of find the connections and the little, the the commentary to other full moon movies. I don't know if anyone is enough of a full moon fan to for this to really pay off as Easter eggs. It's not the yeah. Marvel, it's not the MCU. But sometimes I think Charles Band thinks he's made the MCU. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, and um, for me, rating wise, I can't uh, I can't go above a four twenty, a four a four a four point two zero on this one. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> That's what I'm going to give it. And I would say if you don't have to watch it sober, don't. 
All right. And so the last thing I just wanted to mention was a TV show that I saw probably, I'm going to say, four or five months ago. And one of the ones that in the last couple months that came out was the Night Stalker about Richard Ramirez. And I'm not going to go into that. If you guys really want to know about that show a lot, our friends at the Horror Chronicles have done a couple of really good shows about that. But one of the ones that's of that vein that I don't think I've heard anybody talk about is one called The Ripper. And The Ripper is a four-part documentary about a serial killer in England that is perhaps their most infamous serial killer of all time, and that's Peter Sutcliffe. Now, I'm going to give a full disclosure here. I really, really dislike putting serial killers on a pedestal. They are abhorrent human beings. You should never look up to them. What they did is the scum of the earth and should never be put on anything other than a place of disdain. Having said that, The Ripper I like because it doesn't glamorize what Peter Sutcliffe did, and it's more about the documentary of tracking them and the how it changed the British legal system in his capture. And Peter Sutcliffe was a man who had a troubled marriage, and he would seek out women of the night and, quite frankly, to be blunt, whack them over the back of the head with blunt trauma, be it a hammer or a knife or whatever he had. And he wasn't discriminatory in terms of his age range. A lot of them were young women, but he also did older women. And some of them did survive. And this is a four-part documentary on Netflix that chronicalizes the uh, steps taken by the authorities or the lack of steps taken by the authorities to capture Peter Sutcliffe because he did get captured and he recently died within the last six months in jail after he was captured and how they were tripped up many times, how Peter Sutcliffe was kind of egging them along and how he really did capture the imagination of England and held it tight, especially women between the ages of, I don't know, 40 and 20 for a, a time of a couple years where they were under the glance of not only the public eye, but of Peter Sutcliffe and everyone held them tight. They were advised not to go out on the bus by themselves, not to walk home from work at night by themselves. And the, the steps that the police and the authorities took and where they missed messed up and why what they did changed the way that investigations were to happen in later years. Because it was just at the point, this was the late 70s, just before computers hit and just before the different police forces had like one centralized system. So each little municipal force, you know, sometimes it becomes a peeing contest where you don't want to share, or there was just a lack of coordination. And a whole bunch of coincidences happened that allowed this man, this infamous, this piece of crap to continue what he was doing. So if you like investigative if you like to see how steps were taken to miss and finally hit, if you want to see the mind of a madman, watch The Ripper. I liked it better 
than the Night Stalker. I don't know if you got a chance to see this, Nathan. I haven't seen it. I really want to see it because you were telling me about it before. Uh, again, I'm kind of like you. I'm not. It seems like most of the people that uh, family members we know on Facebook they get excited every time a new serial killer thing drops on Netflix or something. I'm not like that. But uh, you told me enough about it that I am intrigued by it, and I do appreciate when when a series or a film will take that tact of looking at the events surrounding these these people rather than the people themselves. You know, as you said, that it's not glorifying this, but it's looking... I mean, one of my favorite uh, films involving the serial killers is uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. And as you know, the, there's a big hole in the middle of that film where the killer should be, but we don't know who they are, you know? It's, it's very much in that vein. Uh, it was very much like the Ted Bundy in the one that was in the late 80s with Mark Harmon. Yeah, and also uh, Mind Hunters was interesting that uh, David yeah. Fincher produced on Netflix. A yeah, few years back. So I'm definitely interested in checking it out. Yeah, and it's it it didn't do a dramatic like Mark Harmon. Like they didn't tell the story through an actor. It was documents. It was old videos. It was newsreel footage. It was headlines. And that's what intrigues me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They they didn't you know drop by because I know that the um, Night Stalker one you know or replayed them and, and kind of acted them out and you saw the blood draw. This doesn't go that way. It's more of a documentary style. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Very cool. And I, so I am interested in checking out when I get a chance and uh, it's hard because those kinds of shows I can't really have on while the kids, you know, the kids are around. No. So that's not to suggest I watched, um, you know, any of the others with the kids, but. So Bill, we did watch another one together. Do you want to kind of uh, tee that one up for us? Sure, we can tee this one up. You know, like every between all of our different podcasts and life experiences and things get busy, you don't always get the chance to watch what's current. And so we did get the chance to see one. It says 2020. I think it did the festivals then. 2021, it released early in the year called Psycho Gorman. And Psycho Gorman is one that I was actually really excited about because it's obviously Gorman in the title. There's going to be some gore. So I was like, all right, my ears pricked up. But on IMDb, it's considered comedy first, then horror, then sci-fi. Really, it's just kind of a blend of all that. And I'll give the description. After unearthing a gem that controls an evil monster looking to destroy the universe, a young girl and her brother use it to make it use it to make him do their bidding. Ah, that's kind of a generic. Here's what. I thought a brother and sister find a glowing orb or a gem in dirt in their front lawn. And they're kind of figuring out what's going on with it. And a reptile monster has come to the earth and it kills some teens. <laughs> the brother and sister meet the Archduke of Nightmare. They rename him Psycho Gorman. He's come from another planet. Uh, there's some uh, comical scenes involving the spaceship where he came down from. He's from another planet that was put down on this planet because, assumably, at some point he had committed some sort of crime and he was there as punishment and he came down to Earth. And they, him and their friends, kind of use him to kind of figure things out because Psycho Gorman is being wanted by the people from the other planet because he's assumably escaped and at various points they at a, at a certain point in the movie they come down to get him back 
Now, there's lots of practical effects. I'm going to give them credit. A lot of practical effects. There's a lot of homages to 80s sci-fi and 80s sci-fi horror films. Uh, at certain points, sci-fi, you know, films that you might have seen in about 1982, 83, that sort of thing. Uh, there's even an homage to Star Wars, where he goes, I am your monster now. And there's homages to RoboCop with faces melting and the movie Body Melt, which we did about six months ago. To me, it, it didn't. I didn't quite buy into it. I didn't think that the characters, these two young actors, they probably did the best they could. I don't think that the story and the writing really held up. I, at certain points, I was like, okay, come on, come on, come on. And I know this is a movie that you check your brain at the door. And I know this is a popcorn and beer movie. Or with your kids, you could watch this. Well, I don't know if you'd watch it with young kids, but anybody twelve and above, you could watch this with. I didn't. I didn't find it really held together for me. There's an interesting fight scene at the end in a, a warehouse. Uh, there's uh, some lasers shooting back and forth. There's some blood that's spilt, but it didn't quite grab me the way I thought it would. I don't know about your thoughts on that, Nathan. You touched on something there, and you kind of backed off of it when you said you could watch this with your kids. Now, I would probably get in trouble if I watched this with my kids, but I think I'm only a year, a couple years off from that being the case. Uh, my kids are six and nine because, and I, nine years old, I would my I sent the trailer to my sister, and she said, this looks like something we would have watched in the 80s, and we would have bleep and loved it. And I think that's probably accurate. And we probably wouldn't have been very safeguarded against it. Someone would have just turned it on for us. And it, the thing that you're kind of getting at is it is a kid's movie. Like, what I mean by that is it's been designed to sort of be a spoof of an 80s kid's movie. You mentioned Short Circuit, Monster Squad. Like, it's this horrible, the, the perceived by them, genocidal, horrible monster that just kills things sort of indiscriminately, you know, he's kind of plopped down and now these kids have control of him, you know. It's a little bit like the Terminator scenario, but he's this thing that were it not for, for these kids, he'd be destroying the universe as we know it. I, I, and, because I think it tries to get some of like the Goonies sensibility, but I just don't think it quite got it. Well, yeah, because it tries to be kind of like, it tries over the top goofball heartwarmingness, you know, like they do bond with the monster. He becomes their friend. It becomes violent. Violent Power Rangers, you know? Yeah, no, it, it's not an evil dark. It's not going to... They have more effect on Psycho Gorman than he has on them, I guess would be the way that I'm trying to say it, you know? And, so and he... I, I was going to say, it was kind of cute how the one girl kind of... The boy is the one that's afraid of Psycho Gorman. It's the girl that's like, ah, I got the gem. It's not going to touch me. It has to do <laughs> with it. the one guy, like, there's a new <laughs> god in town. And there, there, there's an interesting scene on a basketball court. And yeah. Stuff, you know? And it's, but it's all done in a goofy, like, early Peter Jackson sort of way. Not even quite that intense. Um, yeah. Where the gore is so over the top and silly that a child is probably just going to look at it and be like, this is, you know, this is great. Uh, and it, the, the battle scenes play out about like a, like an episode of like the Power Rangers, but I, what you're saying, I agree with, it doesn't really hold together because it kind of isn't a movie. It's just a fun, like 90 minutes of a lot of like, you know, the, the, you, do we have our synth music? Check. Do we have our goofy idea? And of course he's psycho gore man. And just like we are a phantom galaxy there, it's called PG. So the level of the jokes is about that. Hey, it's a horrible gory film about a monster and kids. And it's called PG, you know, uh, the the jokes really don't 
to the extent there are jokes, a lot of the jokes are just, oh, look, this monster's ripping, arf- ripping arms off in front of kids and they think it's great. You know, it feels about like a sketch comedy, right? I, I was going to say, it's it's a combination of Robot Chicken and a PG version of, um, oh, what's the movie? The uh, uh, the one where the guy, uh, the, the guy's the janitor and he, and he toxic Avenger. It's kind of a, a, they want to go for a trauma thing, but they're nuts. Never as subversive as trauma, you know, trauma is really wild and out there. And this movie's not that wild. It's like, it wants to be, it wants it to feel very wild, but it is kind of a, a sense of its sensibilities are strictly in the Saturday morning cartoon vein of things. Now, that being said, I still enjoyed myself. And like you said, you got a 12-year-old and you're kind of watching with them. It's it's fun. It's hard. It's You aren't supposed to take it seriously. But at the same time, because it doesn't take itself seriously, it's hard to get through the full 90 minutes and feel like it's completely justified. You know, you, you wanted more. This could have been a good 70-minute movie. Yes, or to go further. you almost, It almost needs to be more gonzo. I, I think I was expecting it to be wilder than it was. And then the thing dawned on me is, oh, they really are trying to make an R-rated kids movie. I think but, that's what's hard about it is it's it, it's this weird dichotomy of a thing of who is this for, you know? Uh, it, it's really ultimately for that person who remembers fondly the wild gonzo movies they watched in the 80s as a kid. Other than the practical effect, the one part that I did find enjoyable were the parents and the and the the mother slash wife emasculating the husband. I thought that was funny. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, there are laughs in this movie. I think a lot of the laughs, the funnier bits, have nothing to do with the mutilations. I, I really enjoy how he's so caustic and he's so purely negative about everything. It's how he's been programmed to be, you know, where the Terminator is just, you know, kind of placid and inhuman this thing like he you know the little boy says have a great day it'd be better if you're dead you know <laughs> the little boy's like okay see ya you know that kind of stuff goes a long way but it worked so anyway so that's gonna bring us to the end of the episode again i think we're, I, I really enjoy doing these They're a lot of fun it's 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 cool too in between our bigger episodes just to get together and talk some of this. The next set of episodes we coming up. Very excited about that because uh, the next big one will be uh, will be our two uh, mini mini uh, podcasts. We'll have next is Strange Frequencies coming up. That'll be uh, the first episode of Bill's mini cast, that dealing primarily with music and music related uh, films, and and uh, he's going to go through a really cool album that has ties to science fiction and fantasy so that's going to be it was a lot of fun to record uh dave roy dave was is going to come on he's going to be on with uh a bill for that one and then we will have also the third episode of the illustrated fan with dave becker and myself we're going to be covering a couple animated films related to war that are going to be really interesting and i've just finished catching up on those movies so it was a really good episode there too so i'm really excited for those particularly excited for uh, strange frequencies and then we'll also we've got episode two of the x-files coming up and we also which which is going to be clocking in i I got some editing to do but we have four hours of audio right now (laughs) for that one and uh and then we've also got the episode that we did with the guys over the Horror, horror chronicles uh that are um that, that was our Tubi Roulette, our return to Tubi Roulette. And we're going to be doing 
uh, we're going to get to be roulette back on a regular, not to be roulette. Now you got me calling it to be roulette. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's like the slow, slowly, my plan is coming to fruition. It was VOD roulette. We've got VOD roulette coming up with, uh, uh, with the Horror Chronicles guys, and we're going to put that on a regular schedule. We got a lot of fun stuff, a lot of really cool stuff coming up in May. So uh, and it, yeah. it just came. It just came to me the other night while I was sitting on the couch. One that we might want to bring back was kind of our list of the odd underrated film that we haven't done for a while. Yes, like the individual, like well, yes, like uh, yeah, yeah, we did underrated horror and things like that. So yeah, we got like we have. I I was telling somebody the other day, it's like Phantom Galaxy is really like twenty podcasts in yeah. in a one podcast bag, but that's okay. Um, oh look, a squirrel, a squirrel. Well, we but we're consistent with. I mean, yeah, I'd like to get back. I was my my kids. They always ask sometimes to listen to our our um, narrative episodes. And I thought, Oh, I'd love to get back to that. That's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a little bit more work, you know, putting the audio and everything, but they've always turned out great. So I'm looking to do one of those again soon and maybe have sort of a camping theme. And speaking of camping, Bill, we have to get the Bigfoot one together soon. We got uh, Dave Roy and uh, Greg Bench are up for Bench. Bigfoot. They've been up for Bigfoot since oh, the beginning okay. of this podcast. Remember? <laughs> we just... As far as our themed episodes, I love them too. I'm not sure what's coming up next. Nathan will let me know. But I know I'll probably have to crash watch a bunch of movies. But please, please, people, let us know what you think. If you have ideas, the group page is momentarily going to be up. So let us know. Send your ideas or your posts, whatever it is. And uh, don't be afraid to get in contact because I'm not tough to get a hold of. Okay. And that's the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Take care. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.